Hello and welcome to Coronavirus, The Whole Story. I'm Vivian Parry, a writer, broadcaster, UCL alumna and now host of this podcast all about coronavirus and its impact. If this is your first time tuning in, then welcome to episode 12. Episode 12. How do we get to episode 12? If you want to catch up, head to the UCL Minds website to hear how UCL researchers have contributed to the coronavirus effort in every way possible from getting stuck in on the front line, to tracking the spread of the virus, to developing new social distancing procedures. In this episode, I'm joined by two psychologists to continue our conversation on handling the pandemic using behavioural and social strategies. They'll be applying the expertise in behavioural science to discuss what is and isn't working in the way of anti-COVID measures. My first guest will be familiar to many of you. Susan Mickey is Professor of Health Psychology and the Director of the Centre for Behaviour Change at UCL. Susan's research focuses on how best to measure the impact of interventions on behaviour in the realm of health. One good example is how best to get hospital staff to improve their hand hygiene. Who better then to discuss the current guidelines and how to persuade the population to stay safe and alert. We're also joined by someone who's become familiar to the public during COVID, although many of us know him best for his work on smoking. Robert West is also a Professor of Health Psychology in the Department of Epidemiology and Public Health at UCL. Both of my guests this week are contributing their understanding of behavioural science to managing the pandemic. They're both on the Government Committee on Behavioural Science, the famous SPY-B, and on Independent SAGE's Behavioural Advisory Group. So first of all, I've got to ask you both, What is behavioural science? Well, why did I start with that? It's the scientific understanding of behaviour, behaviour in its context, so understanding the relationship between behaviour, emotions, cognitions, and how those interrelate with each other and also with the social and material environment around us. And in relation to COVID-19, One of the things that behavioural science has been um, working to do is to identify the key behaviours that are responsible for transmission and the behaviours that are needed to change in order to block that transmission. Uh, Give me an example, uh, Susan, of a a behaviour likely to spread transmission of the the sort that... In terms of um, personal protective behaviours of of citizens, um, there there are four key ones. The first is uh, covering your nose and mouth if you cough or sneeze with a tissue that you then dispose of um, safely and immediately or in certain situations wearing a a face mask appropriately. And this prevents the virus from an infected person uh, getting out to potentially infect others. Then one has to think about the roots of transmission, uh, which is why there's been such an emphasis on hand hygiene or hand cleansing because those droplets um, and aerosols coming from people's nose and mouths end up landing on surfaces that people then touch. And they then may touch their nose, eyes and mouth, which is actually how the virus gets into the body. So ensuring that not only hands are regularly cleaned every time one comes into a building before eating or preparing food, but also developing methods not to touch eyes, nose or mouth is incredibly important. And the fourth is the social distance. We know that nearly all the droplets land to the floor within two metres, which is why the two metre distance has been adhered to uh, for so long, and I think still ought to as much as possible. So those four behaviours, if we were able to get the whole population 
to adopt those at scale, we would be able to stop transmission of the virus. And in the situation where um, it doesn't look like we're going to be getting a vaccine or effective medication soon, the behavioural route is the only one we have. But Robert, those are, you know, they're kind of, I, I guess, the things that we all know that we have to do. But what role does behavioural science play in understanding why people don't do those things? The role that it plays is to um, allow people to go beyond the obvious. Uh, the, the sort of things that uh, people would normally expect that you would need to do to get these behaviours uh, going and, and to tackle this in that way are educating people and telling them how important it is and persuading them to, to do it. But of course, behavioural science tells us that there's a lot more to getting people to do things uh, than just educating and persuading people. And so it allows you to take a broader perspective. For example, looking at how you... Uh, for example, can best train people uh, in whatever skills may be required, for example, in the safe handling of face masks, but also in things like environmental measures. How can you, how can you adapt and, con uh, and construct environments which are more conducive to the sorts of behaviours that uh, we need to see in operation? So are we talking nudge here? We're talking beyond nudge because uh, nudge is uh, a, an approach that takes, uh, as the, the label suggests, a sort of um, quite a subtle uh, way of uh, dealing with behaviours and trying to shape behaviours using uh, a, a kind of interventions that are barely in consciousness. Sometimes you, uh, that is enough, but in a lot of cases, and that's largely true here, uh, you've got to go far beyond that. Uh, for example, if you're uh, a government and you're trying to uh, enforce or, or trying to get people to engage in appropriate social distancing measures, uh, behavioural science will be uh, able to help you to determine to what extent, um, uh, you know, punitive measures, to what extent your communication strategy, to what extent the use of uh, visual cues in the environment can be uh, helpful in ensuring that the behaviour takes place. Nudge um, would be one part of that, but it would only be a small part. Okay, so, for instance, with mask wearing, if everybody else is wearing a mask, you feel that you ought to be wearing a mask. I guess that's a kind of nudge bit. But, the, you know, the addition of a big fine if you don't wear a mask would be the extra thing that really made you make uh, wear a mask. Also, the key thing is actually the skills of how you wear a mask, um, because if you don't wear a mask properly and um, you as well as we and everybody else have seen how people wear masks out and about. They touch them, they fiddle them, they, they put them up and down, round their neck, round their forehead. Um, and the problem is, if you are infected, the mask is a great way of um, bringing lots of viruses together. You then touch, then touch other surfaces, and so you can become a contaminant. So what's really important is to train people in how to put on masks, how to wear them, and how to take them off. So, for example, um, much better to have, uh, say, two bags in different pockets or in a bigger bag, one with a clean mask 
and one where you put a, a, a used mask um, or you fold it up very carefully and put it in your bag into a separate place and then sanitize your hands after wearing it. And much better just to wear it in the enclosed confined spaces where we know risk of uh, transmission is many, many times higher than wear it all the time, but keep putting it on and off. Um, so wearing it for short times in particular situations, um, not fiddling with them when they're on, taking them on and off in particular ways. Now that all needs actual training. And one of the things that I have felt throughout this pandemic is that a lot of what we're talking about, which is um, adopting new routines and habits, does require uh, training and different ways of enabling people to do that. And I so wish the government had sponsored a behavioural science programme every day on television, really to explain to people how they can develop these protective behaviours. Because if we can get these done at scale and maintain them, we've got a very different risk situation in our society than we have currently. And developing those new habits is very important, isn't it? I was just thinking, Robert, looking back at your smoking work, where some of the things about smoking cessation are about breaking the old habits of smoking. So, for instance, people automatically reaching for a cigarette after a meal. There are actually some striking parallels between smoking and the kind of behaviours that we're talking about here. Um, for example, if we look at uh, touching your eyes, nose and mouth, uh, this is an extraordinarily ingrained behaviour. And uh, the research has shown that people do it on average around 20 uh, or more times an hour. And there are a number of reasons for it. We, this hasn't been enough research done, but... Uh, it looks as though you know, there's a number of factors that come into play. One of them is just it's done automatically. Um, another one is that, uh, especially when you start thinking about it, your face starts to itch. And uh, so it's, and itches are designed to get you to scratch them. You know, they're, they're sort of, they're, you're programmed to, to have this urge to scratch the itch. So you've got the automatic component and you've got this need to uh, to suppress or cope with an urge. Well, that's very similar to what you see with smoking. And so this is speculation, but it occurs, it does occur to me that there may be some uh, things that we've learned about how, how to control smoking urges and to uh, apply those to these sorts of situations. One idea that um, Susan has had, which I think is important potentially, is that when you're trying to deal with a, a, a highly automated habit, you can't just kind of not do it. It's much better or easier if you can build in a competitive behavior that you can do instead. And so Susan's idea is if you just make sure and build a habit of keeping your um, hands below shoulder height, then that will obviously conflict. And, and if you find yourself with your hand moving up to your face, then it's much more noticeable. You see that you're doing it uh, and you can stop it. So just to add to what Robert said, it's, it's a very different kind of behaviour uh, than, say, developing a routine for hand hygiene. I have to say, when um, I was a child, everybody washed their hands before sitting down for a meal. You know, it was just a done thing. There is no reason why we can't get back to that again. But what the powerful approach there is, is to use sort of top-down rules. And, and the kind of rules that we know from the literature are effective are called if-then rules. If I'm in this situation, then I do that. And you can back it up with 
all sorts of visualizations, rehearsals, writing down contracts that really cement that, bring it into a routine, bring it into a habit. But following from what Robert was saying about the automatic uh, sort of unconscious nature of this face touching behavior, um, a rule just wouldn't cut it. Um, and that's where an incompatible behavior needs to come in. And um, the competitive behavior can include things like folding your hands on your lap, sitting on your hands, putting your hands in your pockets. And this is an example uh, that you really do need to understand the nature of the behavior in its particular situation before you can move on to understand what is likely to be effective in terms of changing that behavior. And sadly, uh, that isn't done. And we don't see that uh, very much in government. So if I can just take an example of that, um, you probably remember uh, early on in the pandemic, the first sunny weekend when um, we and most of the rest of Britain uh, went went out to the local park, which is indeed what we're being encouraged to do. But suddenly there were a lot of people in uh, that situation. And so it was quite crowded and looked even more so when the media photographed it, not aerially, but um, with telescopic lenses. But the response from government, rather than to look at the evidence and show that around 90% of people were highly motivated uh, to keep socially distanced, and it wasn't a motivational issue, uh, but rather was an opportunity issue, what they did was respond as if it was a motivational issue with threat and punishment, saying, if this happens again, we will close down the parks. And what I got onto the media very quickly to say was that the response uh, should have been, there's not enough opportunity. Uh, you are motivated to keep distanced, but you also want to go outside and we're encouraging people to go outside. So therefore, for example, in London, let's open the 45,000 acres of golf courses and all those playing fields that are unused um, in the independent school sector. And this is an example where even a very simple model of understanding behavior and one that Robert and I and many other others use frequently is called COMBI, uh, C-O-M-B, standing for capability, opportunity, motivation and behavior. So in these circumstances, one has to say, is the going to the park and not being always able to keep two meters distance to do with motivation, to do with capability, i.e. they didn't know they weren't meant to, or to do with opportunity? And if you use that sort of, even that's the simplest framework and the frameworks we use are more elaborated than that, but at least that gives a framework for beginning to think, how do I understand this behavior and pointing the direction of what needs to be done to most effectively change that behavior? Yeah, understanding behavior has been a key uh, thread that's run right through this uh, whole pandemic and and it's not been understood. But I want to turn, uh, I mean, it was fascinating, I want to turn now to the easing of the lockdown because we're looking particularly, uh, we're recording this uh, as we come up to the weekend with, we're seeing the first opening of pubs. There's a lot of anxiety about the number of people that might go out and, and, and binge. What can behavioural science do to help us? Yes. Um, so I, th I think that this is, as you rightly say, a potentially risky situation in all sorts of ways. And, uh, you know, it's hard to predict exactly how people are going to operate. But I think there's a few principles that we can put into place. Uh, one is that um, not everyone's going to act in the same way. And we have to recognise there's going to be a wide range of uh, 
responses from people who are frightened to go out into situations and will feel in in a way more isolated because uh, they see other people going out and they feel excluded to to people who will uh, take full advantage of it and will whatever rules there might be in place they will bend or break those rules uh, because they feel confident and comfortable in uh, potentially risky situations. So we need to understand that diversity and we need to be able to help people uh, in all of it, across that diversity to behave in ways that are adaptive for them uh, uh, and enable them to live the best lives they can in this situation, but also safely. And, um, and so that, that's obviously a, a very important factor. Um, I think in terms of the kinds of rules that we're going to have to put in place, we already see that we've moved away from the stay-at-home rule, uh, which was clear, had good boundaries and was well adhered to, to much more nuanced rules. And I think this brings into play um, what we know uh, uh, from a behavioural point of view around how you build a safety culture in society, which is what we're going to have to do uh, for the foreseeable future with this virus. And there are three elements to it. One is you create environments that are as safe as they can be, uh, make them as protective as as you can make them, uh, and that'll take you so far. The second one is that you have rules, you do need rules, and they do need clear boundaries. But the third thing, which is something that Susan alluded to a bit earlier, was around understanding and people's mental models. People have to have an accurate understanding of how the virus is transmitted, uh, how safe or or risky particular environments are. Uh, To give you an example of this, we now have a much better understanding that it's probably a lot safer outside than we originally thought it was and probably a lot more risky inside than we thought it was in the sense that um, we originally thought that the virus was transmitted almost exclusively or exclusively in the community through uh, large droplets, uh, through coughs or sneeze. We now, I think, have a better understanding uh, that there are various sizes of droplets and they can travel further and last for longer in the environment. What that means is that if you are with a number of other people in an unventilated enclosed space, you could be two metres away, you could be three metres away, and you're still potentially going to be at risk if you're in that environment for a period of time. Now, the parallel here is road safety, which, of course, we have um, uh, developed over the uh, decades, uh, that kind of safety culture. We have roads that are designed with safety built in. Uh, We have rules, the highway code, that tells us what we need to do in particular situations. But we also through the process of learning to drive and gaining driving experience, learn to anticipate and understand what kind of situations are more or less risky. And you put those three things together and that that builds uh, your, ideally, you builds your maximally protective um, environment, realising that you're not going to get the risk back uh, down to zero. And one of the problems about risk perception in this whole thing, particularly by young people who do not perceive themselves and indeed are are, are not at the risk from the virus that older people are. And so they they think that they can do 
anything and feel increasingly constrained. And there's a wedge being driven between older, more vulnerable members of society and younger people who's, who in some ways are both least impacted by the virus, but most impacted because they're the ones whose livelihoods perhaps are at greatest risk. So how do we cope with that, Susan? I think that's a, a, a very good question. One of the things that uh, we really encouraged in the early part of the pandemic is to uh, really stress that the risk isn't just about you. The risk is for others. It's for your family members. It's for your community. It's for your uh, society. And I think the first message that the government used uh, was excellent in really encompassing that. So stay home. This is what you should do. Save lives. This is why you should do it. And protect the NHS. This is a consequence of um, you doing that. And we did see that the overwhelming majority, including of young people who I think suffered most from it, did stay at home for many, many weeks. And these are the same people that are now in a very different situation. And one of the things that is really important to keep everybody together, to keep that feeling of collective solidarity that was so well built up at the beginning of the pandemic, is to have trusted leadership, is to have moral authority that people can identify with and trust and understand and follow. And we are in a difficult situation because when the messaging got very uh, mixed and actually muddled around the the stay alert uh, business, and then it was followed by uh, the Dominic Cummings business, when you look at the evidence and the polls, uh, trust in the government's handling uh, really has plummeted. And trust is something that's incredibly important um, in this situation, but quite difficult to build up again. So I think the strategy going forward needs to be a very new approach from the government, which includes much more consultation and partnership and listening with all communities, uh, the elderly who have their own challenges and difficult situations, and young people um, similarly. We've known for months that it's younger people and especially younger men who are the groups who are likely to find this most challenging. And so communication and enabling strategies should really be uh, targeted at those groups that find it most challenging. And for example, I'm very surprised there hasn't been more use of role models um, that young people would identify with, um, you know, famous sports people, singers, um, film stars, etc. cetera, uh, because we know that that can be very persuasive. So I think that, that collective solidarity um, is what needs to be built up, but it's not going to be done without really understanding who we need to bring together. And I think there's also, um, to to regain trust, a a necessity to actually hold one's hand up and say, actually, we haven't done everything right. And we are learning lessons and including everybody in that discussion and in decision making. So, for example, there was a real problem over uh, the school's opening where the uh, schools themselves, the local authorities, governing bodies, etc., weren't properly involved and consulted in advance uh, with all the muddle we saw. So I think these are lessons that we can learn going forward. But you're absolutely right that what we have, I mean, the lifting of lockdown was always going to be more challenging than bringing it about, because at the beginning, everybody was essentially being asked to do the same thing, even though some people were frightened as well. Yeah, it's true. Whereas lifting it, you know, 
it, it means different things for different sections of the population. And as you say, it's a frightening situation. I think the government slightly lost the narrative that we are in a crisis situation. You know, the, the, the level of viral transmission across the country, especially across England and across some parts of it, is high. And people are still dying in their hundreds regularly. So uh, we are in a crisis situation and we need to find ways of how we develop ways of being and ways of doing things that recognise a crisis situation. And I have to say, giving a message of opening pubs on a Saturday night is not a way of really communicating the seriousness of the situation we're in. And there does need to be a real understanding of why people do what they do. I I, I feel very strongly that for... You know, just to wag your finger and tell people that they're, what's the phrase, COVIDiots and all those kind of things, that doesn't actually change their behaviours. And if anything, it makes them more determined to go on and do what they perceive as, as perfectly acceptable. But I want to close this by talking to you both about giving advice to government and how difficult that is and whether behavioural science is the advice is followed, in your opinion. I mean, we've, we've seen quite a lot of the behavioural sciences being dissed in print, and you can uh, imagine that there's quite a lot of that also going on in government. How difficult is it giving a behavioural science advice? There's two problems, really. One is that um, it, the way that the... Uh, system operates within the advisory body that we sit on we we are in response mode so we get asked questions and um and to be perfectly frank those questions aren't always necessarily the best questions or the most important questions or framed in a way that uh, you can give a, a a good answer to that would make a difference so so we're not in a position at uh, really to be able to say well th- this is what we really think you should be paying attention to right now um, tell us what you're proposing and we will try to give you the best possible advice we can on it so it's a bit of a mismatch there uh, the other uh, problem we face I think is that there is a bit of a lack of transparency about what happens to that advice and um, so I, I can't put my hand on my heart and say I know uh, whether the advice is going anywhere or not. I mean, I know that it goes somewhere. I suspect from the, obviously, the, the way the government's been operating over the the, the latter part of this uh, crisis, that they have not been uh, paying a, a huge amount of attention because even right at the beginning, we were setting out some rather broad behavioural principles around the need for trust and the need to explain what you were doing and the, and the reasons why uh, you were doing things and to have a strategy. And, un- you know, unfortunately, um, that doesn't seem to have, uh, um, you know, should we put it this way, you know, in terms of what they're doing and what they're saying, um, I can't see evidence of, you know, where the behavioural advice had gone in. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I think that what we can do, even if we're not being successful in having an impact on 
uh, what the government itself is doing and saying, we're getting a lot of exposure in the media. And uh, uh, and I think people have a much better understanding now about what behavioural science is, and that it's more than just nudge, and it's more than just finger wagging in it, or, or just providing information. And so I think there is an opportunity here to speak directly uh, to people about behavioural science and for them to be able to use it. And of course, there's lots of other organisations and bodies uh, that are involved in this in local government and the health service and so on, who can also make use of that kind of advice. Well, I would add add to that, that one thing to remember is that there's not just the Behavioural Science Advisory Group and SAGE, but also there's the Cabinet Office have behavioural scientists advising them, PHE does, different government departments do. But I think that, again, has has led to a very confused situation. And I think this was most illustrated by the very unfortunate use of a word that is not a scientific term, behavioural fatigue. Now, this was because it's not a scientific term, because none of us had ever heard of it before. (laughs) It was never discussed on our committee. It's not, you can see in all of our published reports and minutes, it's not there. I gather that somebody used the word on SAGE So it's come from somewhere, but there are people from cabinet office and other government departments who sit on SAGE. So we just don't know where it's come from. But that caused a lot of harm uh, to the perception of behavioural science. Why do I say it's not a term? It doesn't exist in the literature. Uh, There's no theoretical explanation for it. There is no measure for it. It's probably being used in a loose sort of mishmash to bring a whole load of very, very different concepts together. But the problem is it appeared that it was being used for a political purpose to justify delaying lockdown that we know from what the modelers say cost tens of thousands of lives. Um, And so I really want to to use this and I use every platform to absolutely say uh, this is not behavioural science. These are two words that's come from somewhere else. And the other thing to say is that I think it's so important that behavioural science is in a proactive, not just a reactive role. So at the moment in the UK, the thing that is most urgently needed if we are to get rid of this virus is to get a really good functioning test, trace and isolate system in place, or as independent stage call it, find, test, trace, isolate and support. In order to do that, one absolutely has to have a behavioural understanding of key parts of that process For example, people need to be willing uh, to give contacts and knowing that those contacts may be asked to self-isolate with negative consequences for their their life uh, and their their work. And also if people are asked to isolate, there's a lot of psychological, social and economic issues that go along with that. And so people will need to be financially compensated and will need to have accommodation provided um, if they can't isolate themselves in their own houses, which most people can't. And I think this is a very good example of behavioural science involved in whole systems and showing where people's behaviour is going to be crucial for systems to work. And it's not just about changing the way people uh, think and feel, but it's also about ensuring the material and social circumstances are in place that enable people to behave in certain ways. I think but what both of you have done is you've shown how critical the role of behavioural science is in all of this. I have a suspicion that there may be some people in some quarters 
who think it's a kind of fluffy add-on. But actually, as you've so well illustrated, it is essential and a real foundation of what we need to do for the future. Sadly, we've come to the end of our time. You've been listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story. This episode was presented by myself, Vivian Parry, produced by UCL, with support from the UCL Health of the Public and UCL Grand Challenges, and edited by the lovely Keris Bradley. Our guests today were Professors Susan Mickey and Robert West. And if you'd like to hear more of these podcasts from UCL Minds, you can subscribe wherever you download your podcasts or visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash coronavirus. And whilst you're there, why not fill out our survey? That would be very helpful. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights and expertise through events, digital content and activities open to everyone. Hope to be with you again soon. Bye for now.